had a dream about this place. episode 25 of ghost stories for the end of the world hope you're good summer is drawing to a close and ahead of us looms the season of the witch which is a a mini series where i'll be sampling some of the paranoia and intrigue and radical politics in the america of the 1960s and 1970s i hope you can join us for that one Our time in the States is going to be wrapping up in the first half of next year. And from there, we're going to return to Europe and we're going to finally infiltrate the hermit kingdom that I call home. And once again, we're going to wade through the swampy murk shrouding the entire continent. I am of a mind at the moment to kind of remaster and add extra material to the first three or four episodes of the show at some point next year because new shit has come to light since I left for the new world, my friends. And I think with my my fancy new recording equipment and my slightly better grasp of, um, you know, how to structure episodes and a better grasp of research and whatnot, I think we ought to add a new layer of paint to our series on Belgium and see if we can recruit some comrades to help us re-examine the Dutroux network and Brabant and so on. Tonight we're looking at the Chicago outfit and Sam Giancana and some more very strange deaths connected to the aftermath of Dealey Plaza. Now we previously discussed this organization before in the American tabloid series but it struck me that there is a hell of a lot more to talk about than we had the space for there because you have to imagine the The Outfits Network is a kind of spiderweb that spans the US and eventually by the 1960s it it reached halfway around the world. And what I'd recommend you do to kind of visualize what I'm trying to say here is to hit pause and quickly look up Mark Lombardi's The Chicago Outfit and Satellite Regimes and fully imbibe the sheer ungodly sprawl of the syndicate. And then hit play on this episode again. Now I was thinking how to kick this off. um, And it occurred to me that an interesting question I have that I never really see posed anywhere else is this. Which is, is the Chicago outfit actually a mafia family? Now that sounds like a no-brainer. But it's not actually a simple question to answer. And the reason it's not simple to answer is because of the quirks of history and politics and geography and economics uh, of, of Chicago. Now, if you were to look at what's left of the organization in 2021, 
And what's left of it is still extremely powerful. Don't get me wrong. But if you were to look that up, and I think I'll include a um, a modern family tree on the Patreon so you can see what I'm I'm saying. But yeah, if you, if you have a look at it, you'll see lots of Italian names and you'll see positions that we'd associate with a traditional mafia family. So soldier, capo, consigliere, underboss, boss, etc. Now, Italian-American mobsters have dominated the outfit for 60 or 70 years now, but it isn't actually 100% accurate to describe the outfit as a mafia family in the purest sense of the term. It has a seat on the commission, and it's mostly allied with mafia families elsewhere in the States, and it played a crucial role in the formation of the National Crime Syndicate. But the outfit didn't begin as a mafia family. And in fact, it adopted a lot of the cultural customs and norms of the other mafia crews from the East Coast, especially over time as a kind of a matter of political and economic necessity, particularly after the repeal of prohibition. And we're going to explore why this happened in the the opening third or so of this episode. Now, we know the, the outfit didn't begin as a mafia family because of the first three bosses who controlled it. Now, we'll take it in reverse. So the third one, Al Capone, he'd been a member of the the mostly Italian-American Five Points gang alongside Lucky Luciano back in New York. Uh, This is true, but neither of them were mafia members at that time. And there's very little evidence that Capone underwent a making ceremony at any point in his career. And nor is there much evidence that he even gave a shit about becoming a made guy, uh, considering how powerful he'd become without his button. Five Points itself was not a mafia crew either. Johnny Torrio, who was Capone's mentor and predecessor, well, he was of Italian descent as well, but he wasn't a member of the Sicilian mafia. Uh, He was from uh, Basilicata, which is near Campania while Capone was the son of two immigrants from Naples. And then Jim Colosimo, the the outfit's unwitting founder. Well, he was from Calabria. So it's not possible that the Chicago syndicate was originally a Sicilian Koshka. There's no evidence that Capone, despite his Neapolitan ancestry, was a member of the Camorra. And the Andrangheta traveled extremely slowly for its first century or so of existence. So there's no chance that Colosimo was a member of a Calabrian clan at any point in his life. There's some indication that the outfit does have a kind of initiation ceremony, like a normal mafia family. But the particulars of it, and that's assuming that these accounts are true, well, the particulars of it seem quite different to the the traditional one that we've discussed previously. So instead of reciting an oath of loyalty the boss will usually light a playing card or an image of a saint and make the initiate hold it in silence without flinching. There's no finger pricking, there's no sword and gun on a table, there's no elaborate ritual of call and response, but even all of this is debatable. Uh, Nicholas Calabresi, who was an outfit informer who turned state's witness and helped the US government with Operation Family Secrets in the early 2000s, Well, he's one of the few former members to have claimed there's a ceremony, and he says the outfit bosses borrowed it from the Godfather. But this can't be true because 
There is no initiation ritual depicted in either the book or the film. Uh, it's an odd one. So if the organization isn't a normal mafia family, then what the hell is it exactly? So to try and answer that, we're going to once again break our rule about only really dealing with like the post-war era. And we're going to loop back over a century. See, the outfit developed out of the tangle of local street gangs and brothel keepers and saloon owners and dirty cops already operating around the four-block Levy District on the south side of Chicago in the late 19th century. In the Levy, you had multi-ethnic gangsters running robbery and extortion rings and acting as enforcers and vote farmers for local political bosses. The Brothel owners and saloon keepers variously paid these crews or made them partners for protection from rival businesses and they all in turn paid off politicians and cops and judges to look the other way. Conditions in the levee were, from all accounts, appalling. There were about 5,000 prostitutes working in the district. Many of them were enslaved, many of them were underaged and murders and rapes were a regular occurrence. The area was described by one writer of the time as an oversized, stupid village full of the loud, the lawless, the godless, and the body. Two um, particularly prominent political bosses in the First Ward, John Coughlin and Michael Kenner, came to rely on the Chicago underworld for financing at election time. They even organized a protection cartel that collected payments from the levy vice networks and bookmakers. And they headed up a group of corrupt city aldermen called the Grey Wolves. And between the 1890s and the 1930s, they specialized in influence peddling, franchising rackets to preferred client gangsters, and awarding infrastructure contracts to private businesses for them to build and maintain everything from Chicago's gas supply to its electricity and its telephone lines. And many of these businesses would eventually become fronts for the outfit. The Levy District was the center of Chicago's underworld for a good 30 years, but Chicago's downtown began to expand dramatically in the 1890s. And this brought an influx of respectable middle and upper middle class types to the city, taxpayers, and many of them were devout Christians with a Puritan streak who they represented a major political force that couldn't be ignored by the corrupt city government if it wanted to see Chicago continue to grow. So in the years leading up to World War I, the city council and law enforcement made a concerted effort to close the levy down block by block. Now this didn't do much to stop organized crime, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was to simply push it away from the respectable parts of the city. And as the gangs kind of spread out of downtown Chicago and into the surrounding suburbs, they mingled with other criminals and political bosses already operating in these locations. And they underwent a kind of gangland cultural exchange. And the biggest vice ring in Chicago in the early 1900s, beyond a shadow of a doubt, was run by Big Jim Colosimo. And at the peak of his influence, he and his wife Victoria ran 200 brothels and made about $50,000 a month from prostitution and gambling. He was made a precinct captain by John Coughlin, 
which meant he had political sway in the city and he could be relied on to collect payoffs for the Chicago political machine. Colosimo's organization was the foundation of the outfit, but it was his successors who would evolve and adapt it. Now, Big Jim found himself threatened by a crew of black hand extortionists, and he turned to Johnny Torrio for help. And Torrio was a, a rising New York gangster with a very keen eye for strategy and organization. And after he moved to Chicago in 1909, he eliminated the Black Hand firm with a series of quick, efficient killings. And a few years later, in 1919, Torrio invited his protege, Al Capone, to join him from New York. Both of them saw Chicago as a boom town, particularly with Prohibition looming. But Colisimo was content with his brothels and his gambling racket, and he was unwilling to expand his operations. So Torrio and Capone had him killed, and then Torrio just took over the operation with Capone installed as his uh, number two. So Johnny was now in charge of an organization that was in good standing with uh, political bosses across the city, particularly in the First Ward. And thanks to his time on the East Coast, he had connections with gangsters who were spreading across the states to set up what we can think of as mob outposts to take advantage of the, the prohibition windfall. Some of these outposts forged especially close business ties with Chicago and they built organizations that would become satellite firms of the outfit. And this kind of forward thinking, sponsoring these guys as early as he did, is why Torrio is widely regarded as someone who was as close to a strategic genius as it's possible to get. He established breweries and clandestine distribution networks in Chicago to keep speakeasies supplied with booze, and he maintained very good working relationships with people like the Bronfmans in Canada to ensure access to high-quality liquor for his more upmarket businesses. He even kept a string of um, dentists and barbers on the payroll who were all licensed to access neat alcohol as part of their, you know, their regular day jobs. Torrio preferred professional career criminals who were discreet and ruthless over recruiting directly from Chicago's street gangs. And this lent his organization more of an elite feel. And outside of the first ward, other firms were also getting in on bootlegging. And these included the Urbanian gang in the near north side, the Jenner brothers in the near west side, the O'Donnell brothers on the southwest side, and Chicago's most powerful African-American gangster at the time, Daniel McKee Jackson. And he ran speakeasies and gambling rings in the back rooms of the funeral parlors that he owned. And he wielded considerable political power of his own. Torrio approached all of them with the idea of dividing Chicago into spheres of influence where each crew would respect the other's territory and make a concerted effort to reduce the more attention-grabbing crimes like armed robbery, hijackings, murders, burglaries. And this uneasy truce, it held for a, a very short time. But the Urbanians began to chafe at the pressure that they were being put under by Torrio's allies, the Jenner brothers. And for whatever reason... Torrio somewhat uncharacteristically chose to have Dino Banyan murdered in his flower shop instead of trying to find a, a compromise like he usually would. And Albanian's successor, Hyman Weiss, he made a move against Al Capone shortly afterwards in January of um, 1925. 
Now, Capone was able to escape that hit attempt, but shortly afterwards, Torrio was ambushed and shot while he was grocery shopping. And after this, he found himself serving a nine-month prison sentence when one of his breweries was raided by Prohibition agents. Now, that hit attempt and his time inside seems to have really spooked Torrio, and he resigned as boss on his release from, from jail, and he handed over the reins to Capone. Now, Torrio returned to the East Coast and he continued to serve as a kind of consultant and a mediator for the East Coast and Midwest organizations. And he worked as a, a bail bondsman as, as cover. He still retained a very large amount of influence long after he abdicated as Chicago's boss there. Um, in fact, he's said to be one of the people who helped put together the Atlantic City Conference of 1929 and he advised Luciano and Lansky while they were developing the, uh, the syndicate and the commission. So we've kind of already discussed the main areas of interest of Capone's rise and fall in the American tabloid series. I think that was, it was either part one or part two. I can't quite remember at the moment, <laughs> but it was definitely in there. Um, yeah, we touched on the incessant bombings, the shootouts, the car chases, and the murders that defined his time in charge. But one point I should make here is that his era of control was instrumental in embedding the outfit in the fabric of Chicago's economic and political life to a greater degree than it ever had been before. See, Capone was basically a lot smarter than most biographies give him credit for. He brought in an accounting genius called Alex Lewis Greenberg, who restructured the syndicate's finances and invested the bulk of its bootlegging profits in cash businesses like restaurants, theaters, hotels. And he also taught the outfit the value of laundering its wealth using complex financial schemes and expanded its business interests into real estate, crucially. Now, once it started buying land, the outfit collected even more friends in politics and business across Illinois, and it provided financing and became silent partners in a number of straight business ventures that went on to become massive companies. So the Seagram's Liquor Empire, you know, owned by the Bronfmans, the Music Corporation of America, Seaberg International, the Hyatt Hotel chain. This is just a couple of the, the kinds of things that they were getting involved with. Greenberg, for his part, wound up being shot dead in front of his wife outside a Chicago restaurant in 1955. You see, back in 1943, under pressure from feds who were looking into his own murky finances, he'd served as a government witness against half a dozen Capone subordinates who tried to extort about $3 million from Hollywood studios through the entertainment unions that they controlled. The fact that they waited over a decade before finally going after Greenberg serves as a kind of testament in a sick way to the, the calculating patience that the outfit had learned at this time in contrast to the more hair-trigger atmosphere under Capone's leadership. Mayor William Thompson, the Republican boss of the city, he was openly allied with the Capone crew and by the 1930s, Chicago citizens had grown wary of the level of graft that was going on in the open. Because Thompson had enabled the syndicate to become so enmeshed in city politics, it was impossible for legal businesses, city administrators or police to make a move without an okay from either the syndicate or Thompson's political machine. 
and the violence and unrest that accompanied every election campaign while Al Capone was in charge was damaging the legitimacy of city governance. In 1931, Thompson lost the mayoral election to Anton Chermak, who campaigned on a platform of reform and anti-corruption. Now, Chermak wasn't actually anti-corruption per se. He just recognized that the level of violence generated by Capone's time as boss was drawing too much attention from the press and Washington. He still valued the vice rackets as a source of financial and political support for machine Democrats, but he despised Al Capone and he wanted someone else in charge of the, the city's underworld. Chermak was assassinated in Miami while he was making a speech on stage with FDR in 1933. And naturally, there are, there are more than a few conspiracy theories about his murder, since the gunman was an Italian, and Chermak is alleged to have tried to have Capone's successor, Frank Nitti, assassinated a couple of months beforehand. The Chicago Daily Tribune published quite an interesting analysis of what was still called the Capone mob in the late 1930s that listed all the known members, and they divided the organization into four categories. The Income Department, the Board of Directors, the Protection Department, and the Gunmen. They found that only 40% of the known members were ethnically Italian gangsters, and there was also debate over how much of the city government should be considered part of the syndicate. Chermak's successor, Edward Kelly, and his mentor, the Cook County Democratic Chair, Pat Nash, had moved to consolidate the Democratic machine's influence over Chicago's vice rackets after Kelly became mayor, and they collected protection money from upwards of 7,500 brothels, clubs, and policy bookmakers that were all in turn connected in some way to the syndicate. With the repeal of Prohibition and the arrest of Capone, the outfit had made a concerted effort to submerge its operations and diversify into other commercial ventures to try and recoup their lost bootlegging profits. And this meant increasing its already considerable involvement in gambling houses and slot machines, uh, prostitution rackets, loan sharking operations, and what there was of the narcotics trade at that point, as well as refining the money laundering activities that they'd begun to develop under Al Capone. What they needed to facilitate all of this was political protection and a friendly network of cops and prosecutors who could ensure a smooth transition. Uh, law enforcement types who got assigned to tackle organized crime realized that there was more money in working as part-time debt collectors and bagmen for the outfit rather than trying to arrest bosses and soldiers, which raises the interesting question of where the Chicago outfit ended and where the legitimate city and state institutions and businesses began and which of these two was the most influential player in organized crime in the city by 1940 or so. Was it the political bosses or was it the gangsters? See, it's true that the political machine refined by Kelly was formidable, but he would have found it impossible to farm the votes and collect the payoffs needed to cement his power without the syndicate acting as a kind of mediator with the broader Chicago underworld, as, a, as an informal arm of local government, which is the very essence of a deep-lying political entity. But it's also true that the syndicate wouldn't have managed to grow the way it did 
without help from politicians at the state and national level. The syndicate's relationship with politicians and law enforcement also ensured that, at least for a time, the official line was that the organization had imploded with the arrest of Al Capone, and there might still be splinter factions here and there, but there was no longer a unified criminal network running Chicago's underworld. It was in the mid-1940s that the outfit became a formerly Italian-American enterprise after a decree issued by Paul Ricker during his time as boss. Now, there was a couple of reasons for why it makes sense that he implemented this kind of soft restructuring of the outfit along a more traditionally mafia-type model. For one, the 42 Street Gang, which was founded in the mid-1920s. Well, that had caught the syndicate's attention with a daring string of saloon and nightclub robberies during Prohibition. Apparently, they lifted their name from um, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Uh, They said that they went one higher because they were one better. 1920s humor kind of escapes me. Uh, Many of the members... They were from Chicago's Italian-American community. They were, you know, young street kids. Eventually, the gang came to serve as a sort of farm system for the outfit. And it was a place where would-be recruits could show off their skills and audition for a spot as a soldier or a hitman for the organization. And as far as we know, the first member of the gang to join the outfit was Sam Giancana, who distinguished himself as a very canny networker and a skilled getaway driver during the 1920s and the 1930s. Additionally, Al Capone had moved his base of operations to Cicero, uh, away from the the metropolitan centre of Chicago at the height of his power. To maintain a presence in the city, he trusted his lieutenants, who happened to also be mostly Italian, to recruit local street bosses to kind of hold down territory and ensure payments were collected on schedule. These lieutenants preferred to deal with fellow Italian-American criminals they already had business relationships with. And these guys were like their friends and relatives from the neighborhoods where they'd grown up. These street bosses, in turn, formed crews that were also from the same neighborhoods. The FBI estimated that at least 70% of the outfit was Italian-American by the end of the 1950s. And this had the the unintended benefit of helping to legitimize it in the eyes of the East Coast families who may have still harbored some grudges after the chaos of the the Capone years. And finally, there's the fact that as the reach and the complexity of its business interests grew, trust was in increasingly short supply. And while they'd still rely on networks of non-Italian partners and advisors and investors to find new business opportunities, it made sense to them that members of the the kind of ruling strata of the outfit would feel more loyalty to each other if their relationships were based on something more than just money and business. And shared ethnic heritage seemed like a simple shortcut to reinforcing these bonds of trust. Whether that actually works in practice is something that we're, we're going to find out as we go along. So the outfit's expansion meant that Other crews operating in and around Chicago and Illinois were either neutralized or absorbed as the years went by. 
Not all of these crews were Italian, but they all became part of the outfit nevertheless, in the same way that, say, the Fox Network retains its own branding and autonomy, but it's still owned by Disney, and it's therefore ultimately accountable to the Disney Corporation and its board of directors. The same kind of goes for the, the myriad of politicians, police departments, law firms, corporations, casinos, and unions across the US that the outfit came to control. This is what Mark Lombardi meant by the term satellite regimes. The outfit is a criminal syndicate that is ruled by a predominantly Italian-American crew, but most of its key sources of power and wealth, Vegas, Hollywood, finance, the unions, they had very little to do with the traditional mafia hierarchy, and some of its top leaders and consultants would never have been admitted to any of the five families owing to their heritage. So, for example, they counted on advice uh, from Maya Lansky for their eventual moves in Vegas and Cuba, which, you know, so did the New York family, so that's not too big a revelation. But a guy called Hyman Lana, who someone we'll be looking at in more detail in a moment, well, he could never be admitted to the ruling strata as such because of his Jewish heritage, but he was considered as influential, if not more influential, than Sam Giancana at one time. And as the Chicago Tribune explains, one of the most important fixes for the outfit was Jacob Avi, who was a democratic political boss, again of Jewish heritage, who proclaimed his intention to clean up Chicago, but recognized that certain accommodations had to be made if he was going to get anything done in office. Quote, his clout with the Truman administration puts a protege in charge of property seized from German companies and interned Japanese Americans. These West Coast assets were sold for a fraction of their value to silent mob partners and the young lawyers, Avery accomplices, who served as their frontmen. Some of these young lawyers then set up shop in California and duplicated Chicago's democratic machine there, fueling their candidates' campaigns with money donated by the outfit and related unions. This is in part what helped facilitate the outfit's famous westward uh, drive into Hollywood and the music industry. And wherever their emissaries in the overworld went, so we're talking the lawyers, the bankers, the investors, the accountants, the political fixers, uh, wherever they went and wherever they sent outfit money, gangsters would follow to oversee these new ventures and make sure that a percentage made its way back to the bosses in Chicago. These emissaries comprise what Gus Russo has termed a super mob. They helped the outfit expand across the country and eventually the world. And one of the most crucial operators was a guy called Sidney Karshak. Karshak was a lawyer and a fixer in the entertainment industry. His brother, Marshall, was a major player in Chicago politics and wound up becoming a Democratic state senator. And with a phone call, Sidney could start or end a wildcat strike that might bring a film studio to its knees. His clients included MGM, Hyatt, Playboy, and MCA. He also helped the outfit expand into stock fraud and insider trading, and he made millions uh, for himself and his outfit partners with a guy called Bernard Cornfield, who was investigated for misconduct when his firm, 
Investment Overseas Services was accused of being a Ponzi scheme that had fleeced thousands of American expats living in Europe. Also in contrast to the East Coast Mafia families, the outfit enjoyed a relatively stable line of succession at the leadership level from its founding up until the late 1960s. Aside from the assassination of Big Jim Colosimo, John Torrio retired, Al Capone appointed his brother Ralph to serve as acting boss after his arrest. Ralph, who drew most of his income from legitimate businesses anyway, and so had he had very little reason to fear the cops, well, he was content to serve as a frontman for the outfit for a year until a permanent successor was found. And then he was happy to hand over control to Frank Nitti in 1931 and retired to the suburbs with his family. Nitti was the victim of a botched hit, for sure. But this had been ordered by a, a crooked politician, not like a disgruntled underling or a rival crew. And he eventually died after 12 years at the top of the firm by his own hand. He'd overseen a period of massive growth for the outfit, and he was succeeded by Paul Rika. Uh, Rika ruled for four years and stepped down peacefully in 1947, and then Tony Akado took over afterwards. And Akado ruled for 10 years until he retired in 1957 and was succeeded by Sam Giancana. But even then, uh, Rika and Akado stayed on as informal advisors to Giancana, and all major business decisions had to be approved by them. Just how powerful was Sam Giancana by the early 1960s? Well, we've talked before about how Robert Mayhew, Howard Hughes' bagman and a CIA contractor, and a mob fixer and CIA asset called Johnny Roselli, 
We talked about how they brokered the partnership between the syndicate and the agency regarding Cuba, which led to the disastrous plots to assassinate Fidel Castro. Giancana was a crucial part of these negotiations, and without his agreement, the talks would have never begun. Around the same time, he'd also grown paranoid that his mistress, Phyllis McGuire, was having an affair with the comedian Dan Rowan in Las Vegas. So when Sam said he wanted to cut a particular meeting in Miami short to head to Vegas and check in on Phyllis, the agency officers in the room nixed the idea and instead they paid for Bob Mayhew to bug Rowan's telephone as a as a gesture of goodwill. The only reason we know about this is because the private detective that Mayhew hired was arrested while he was trying to break into Rowan's hotel room. Uh, Phyllis was one of a number of girlfriends that Sam shared with JFK, the others being uh, Judith Exner and allegedly Marilyn Monroe. And in fact, Sam is supposed to have spent the night with Marilyn Monroe, uh, before she was found dead the next day. And prior to the Bay of Pigs disaster, it's fair to say that JFK and Giancana were on at least friendly terms. Uh, they both went to the same parties, hosted by Sinatra and other members of the Rat Pack, and they shared a number of other mutual friends in high society. When Frank Sinatra Jr. was kidnapped in 1963, uh, Frank Sr. contacted Giancana for help, as well as the cops and the FBI. And in 1958, Giancana and Maya Lansky reached out to Carlos Marcello, Johnny Roselli, and a Lansky representative called Ted Lewin, and asked them to help E. Howard Hunt and the CIA organize a conference in Guatemala City that was intended to bring together regional right-wing business and political operatives. And this, in turn, eventually became part of the, the World Anti-Communist League. And this kind of thing just goes on and on and on. By the mid-1960s, though, history was beginning to leave Giancana behind. Uh, Robert Kennedy's war on organized crime had exposed the outfit to more scrutiny than at any time since the Senate hearings of the early 1950s. And in Chicago, the firm was undergoing a momentary crisis of confidence. You see, paranoia was rife that the FBI was cultivating informants and at one point, they directly approached Giancana's chief assassin, a guy called Charles Nicoletti. Uh, Nicoletti was widely feared in the Chicago underworld. Um, some estimates put as many as 30 bodies on him. And he was rumored to be on the payroll of the CIA. A guy called Jimmy Files, in fact, claimed in a Playboy interview that Nicoletti had helped plan the JFK hit on behalf of Giancana and elements in the CIA. And he may have even been one of the other shooters in Dealey Plaza. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think Johnny Roselli was supposed to be firing up from out of a, a um, storm drain. If you've seen the movie Casino, and I hate myself for bringing this into it but if you've seen the movie casino the scene where joe pesci's character pops the guy's eye out with a vice well that's based on a real torture session that nicoletti and the real life pesci character tony spilotra uh, took part in around 1962 and supposedly the fbi only made the one approach but rumors persisted for years afterwards that nicoletti had actually flipped which was why he seemed to operate with impunity 
Eventually, Giancana's CIA connections weren't enough to protect him from a grand jury, and he was subpoenaed to appear before one in 1965, and he repeatedly invoked his Fifth Amendment rights, and he spent a year in jail on a contempt charge. And Paul Rica and Tony Accardo replaced him with Joey Ayupa. And when Giancana got out of prison, he was apparently... Uh, afraid of what his old colleagues would do if he was summoned again, so he skipped town and fled to Mexico. Now, an interesting possibility here is that Giancana's release was actually engineered by elements in the US government. See, while Sam had been in jail, the Cook County State Attorney, Edward Hanrahan, had continued to probe Giancana's business dealings and underworld ties until the investigation was abruptly cancelled. Hanrahan said in an interview years later that he'd been ordered to do so by Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach. According to a former Chicago cop and an outfit bagman called Mike Corbett, who wrote a book about the outfit with Sam Giancana's nephew uh, not too long ago, Hyman Lana is the guy who fixed it so the investigation would be dropped. Lana, in return, is supposed to have helped the CIA smuggle a shipment of US military hardware into Israel. Katzenbach, incidentally, is the guy who suggested creating the Warren Commission and provided suggestions for who should sit on it after the, the JFK assassination. Now, even after he was deposed as outfit boss, Giancana was still a considerably powerful man. Uh, Similar to Lucky Luciano, he continued to run schemes while he was in exile, and he and Hyman Lana used their contacts in the CIA to reach out to the Shah of Iran. No shit. And they obtained permission to build the Ab Ali Hotel and Casino in a Tehran suburb in 1970. They also set up a number of uh, highly lucrative drug and gun smuggling networks. Lana is an absolutely fascinating guy. He's a kind of, or he was a kind of roving entrepreneur of the Chicago underworld who wielded a huge amount of influence over the outfit without ever formally joining it. Uh, he became something of um, an underworld legend during the Senate hearings of the 1950s when he invoked his Fifth Amendment right 55 times while he was being cross-examined. And one thing I always think about when I watch those clips it's how CIA agents' eyes must have lit up at seeing the way that guys like Lana withstood those intense rounds of questioning, especially while they were being filmed and photographed. Lana got his start running slot machines, and he parlayed this into a number of lucrative ventures with top guys in the outfit. And guys like Lana are crucial in their ability to move huge sums of money and connect different businessmen in the under and overworld. And he played a very similar role to Maya Lansky. Um, in actuality, the pair of them were pretty good friends and they both donated tens of thousands to pro-Zionist causes and helped set up a very crucial money laundering operation for the outfit in Panama and the Bahamas. And then owing to his status as a, a well-connected gangster and gunrunner and financier, Lana eventually developed business ties to the CIA, the Mossad, and the Shah of Iran's secret police, the, uh, the Savak. And he is said, supposedly, to have befriended Poppy Bush when he was director of the CIA, and he helped set up the Contra smuggling routes and money laundering schemes for Reagan's 
dirty was, and even into the 1980s, when most of his colleagues from the old days had been killed or arrested, Lana continued to fly guns to Noriega's armed forces in his private plane on behalf of the CIA, and allegedly he'd returned to the States with payment in the form of cash or coke. Right up until he died peacefully at the age of 89, every single attempt to investigate his activities had been blocked by unknown elements in the CIA. The outfit probably reached the peak of its financial power in the late 1960s and 1970s, and a major reason for this was its involvement in Las Vegas and the massive embezzlement scheme it was running with the Teamsters Pension Fund. And this was a truly stunning bit of fraud that really needs its own episode to get into all the particulars of. But basically, Tony Accardo, Sidney Korshak, Maya Lansky, Hyman Lana, Jimmy Hoffa, and dozens of other top guys conspired to steal millions from the Teamsters and launder it all through outfit casinos on the Strip, and then use the profits to invest in real estate deals and businesses everywhere from Florida to California and South America. On top of this, they were also engaged in what they called skimming, uh, which was deliberately under-reporting the profits of the Vegas operations and then stashing that money in offshore bank accounts and new investments. And Lansky especially was in dire need of money in the wake of the Cuban Revolution. Uh, He told friends at the time, and for years afterwards, that he'd been ruined after Fidel and Shea marched on Havana. And he resumed building up a string of loan sharking and bookmaking operations in the US. And, as we mentioned, he went in with the outfit and other families on various investments all through the 1960s. And he kept a string of money managers on the payroll in Switzerland. And he was said to have stashed as much as $300 million in various offshore accounts and properties held in other people's names. For all that his blackmail scams had mostly kept him out of prison in the past, the heat really started to come down on Mayalansky in the late 1960s, and he fled to Israel in 1970, uh, trying to avoid a couple of federal indictments for tax evasion. A protracted legal battle then followed, and at one point, Lansky offered to pay the Israeli government a million dollars to be allowed to stay. But in 1972, he was deported back to the States. He was eventually deemed too ill to stand trial, and his team of expensive doctors diagnosed him with heart trouble, bronchitis, stomach ulcers, and bursitis, and they informed the judge that he was unlikely to survive even another year. Considering what he likely knew about the syndicate's collusion with the national security state after World War II and during it, It's reasonable to assume his legal team leveraged this during negotiations with the US government as well. Uh, He eventually retired to Miami and he lived mostly uh, in a a low-key secluded fashion. He'd occasionally perform a bit of consulting work for various underworld bosses and miraculously, I can't believe this, he lived far beyond his doctor's expectations and died peacefully. Uh, in 1980. At the time, he was said to have had only $35,000 in his bank account, but it's widely believed that there was far more. Somewhat hilariously, his grandson, Gary Rappaport, 
he's repeatedly demanded that the US force the Cuban government to compensate Lansky's surviving relatives for nationalizing his hotels and casinos back in the 1950s. So like I said, at some point I will go long on the syndicate's Las Vegas skimming operation and the resulting fallout, but it's, it's way more than we have time for today. So instead, I want to talk about how things played out for Giancana as the 1970s proceeded. And the first thing you need to know is that there are a lot of weird deaths connected to the JFK assassination. And I mean a lot. Um, I could hardly believe it when I was researching American tabloid like over the last year. I thought that people had been overstating it all this time. And, you know, that the figures couldn't possibly be that high. Uh, we don't even have time to get into all of them. But for context, uh, I'll give you a few. So you have a woman called Karen Kupsinet or Kupchinet, whose dad, Irv, was a journalist and a talk show host who knew Jack Ruby through a string of mutual acquaintances. A couple of days before the JFK assassination, Karen tried placing a call to the Dallas Police Department, and the operator distinctly heard her say, the president is going to be killed in Dallas. And a week after the assassination, she was found dead of a gunshot wound to the head, unsolved murder. Dr. Mary Sherman worked on contract for the CIA, developing poisons under the direction of Sidney Gottlieb, who was the CIA's top scientist. And she was alleged to have been involved in developing some of the poisons that the mob intended to use to kill Fidel Castro until the plans were abandoned. After the JFK assassination, she was stabbed to death and her lab was burned to the ground. Again, murder remains unsolved. David Ferry and Guy Bannister, who were also uh, key uh, persons of interest in Jim Garrison's investigation of JFK's assassination. Well, after he called them to testify uh, in court, they were found dead as well. Uh, Rose Cheremey, the woman who said that she heard two New Orleans-based Cuban exiles and drug runners talking about the Kennedy hit and accurately predicted when and where it was going to take place while she was in hospital. She was found dead in mysterious circumstances by the side of a road in Texas in 1965. Roger D. Craig was a Dallas patrolman who testified to the Warren Commission that he'd seen Lee Harvey Oswald get into a car that was driven by an unidentified second man 15 minutes after the assassination. And he was dismissed by his superiors and his peers, and he was ostracized from the force, but he never changed his story. And after he served as a prosecution witness in Garrison's trial of Clay Shaw in 1967, a little later that year, Craig was shot at while walking to his parked car. Uh, the bullet grazed his head. In 1974, he was forced off a mountain road by another car and almost died. And a year later, his car mysteriously exploded seconds after he climbed into it. He survived this somehow, but in May of 1975, he was found shot twice in the back of the head and the coroner ruled it a suicide. Now this list goes on and on and you can find plenty of other names with a few searches. Uh, Craig's death in the mid-1970s wasn't the only one from this period either. Uh, and I think it's significant that there were, a, in fact, a series of murders that took place during this time frame because this was when the church committee hearings were going on. 
you know, the, the massive investigations into the activities of US intelligence agencies, uh, particularly the CIA. And it's also when they started to set up the House Select Committee on Assassinations. So Sam Giancana was abruptly arrested by Mexican authorities after years of living in the open and deported back to the States in 1974. And by this point, his power within the outfit was almost entirely gone and his friends in politics and showbiz had mostly abandoned him. Like most mob losers, uh, he apparently decided to cooperate with the church committee and give at least some information about the links between the syndicate and the CIA. A team of police were assigned to guard his house in 24-hour shifts in Oak Park, just outside Chicago. And somehow, with cops outside, someone managed to get into the house on the night of June the 20th, 1975, and they put seven bullets in his head. Even the New York Times had to admit that the timing was extremely suspect. And Giancana's death came during a period where Johnny Roselli was already speaking to the church committee and explaining how Operation Mongoose and the joint mob and CIA activities had worked in Cuba. And when he found out about Giancana's killing, Johnny left LA for Miami and he moved from safe house to safe house over the next few months. When the church committee called him to testify again in 1976, they discovered that he'd gone missing that July and his remains were found sealed in a 55-gallon steel drum floating in the ocean off the coast of Miami. George D. Morenschill, the oil investor and CIA asset and friend to the powerful Southwest elite and Lee Harvey Oswald's confidant in Dallas, where he found himself growing increasingly paranoid in 1975 and 1976 as first the church committee hearings started and then the House Select Committee on Assassinations got rolling. He was convinced that his phone had been tapped, that his mail was being tampered with, and that mysterious cars and strange men were following him when he left his house. His wife was afraid that he was going insane, and in desperation, de Monchil wrote to an old acquaintance of his who had recently become the director of the CIA, George H.W. Bush. Now, reading between the lines of de Morenschild's letter, it seems pretty obvious that he's trying to say that the agency has nothing to fear from him, that he's learned the error of speaking so openly about his connections to Oswald and the Kennedy assassination. And he also seems to understand exactly who Poppy is and the power that he welds. Um, de Morenschild begs him to remove the net around us, meaning him and his wife. Bush's reply shades towards condescension in places, and he wrote this. I was extremely sorry to hear of these circumstances. In your situation, I can well imagine how the attentions you described in your letter affect both you and your wife. However, my staff has been unable to find any indication of interest in your activities on the part of federal authorities in recent years. I can only speculate that you may have become newsworthy again in view of the renewed interest in the Kennedy assassination and thus may be attracting the attention of people in the media. I hope this letter has been of some comfort to you, George. On March 29th, 1977, de Morenschild met with journalist Edward J. Epstein for an interview about Oswald and JFK, which, you know, 
somewhat contradicts his claim that uh, he's going to forswear all <laughs> future media appearances and whatnot. Anyway, this meeting ended around 1pm and they both agreed to meet again a little bit later. When DeMar and Schilt got home, his daughter had left him a note saying that another JFK investigator and a journalist called Guyton Fonzi had called. Now Fonzi had been selected to work for the House Select Committee on Assassinations in a research capacity. DeMorenshill was found dead that evening from a shotgun blast to the head. Here's something weird that I dug up when I was reading about this. So DeMorenshill's daughter at the time, she was working on a, a kind of art project where she'd record the audio of her favorite television programs to create sound collages. Uh, she left the maid instructions to record one of these shows that evening. DeMorenshill had become obsessed with security in the years leading up to his death. So in addition to an alarm system, he also had small silver bells installed over the front and back doors so they'd ring whenever they were opened. And at the time of his death, there was only the maid and George in the house. Supposedly, the tape recording clearly picks up the soft sound of a bell tinkling in the silence between commercial breaks. And a minute or so later, you hear the shotgun blast. The maid is later supposed to have said that she thought she'd heard footsteps scrabbling across the porch roof shortly after the gunshot, but she refused to ever talk about any of this again after the fact. On the exact same day, Charles Nicoletti, Giancana's chief hitman, he was also called to testify before the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Nicoletti was shot three times in the head that evening at close range while he was sat in his car outside a restaurant in North Lake, Cook County. James Angleton, who had an affinity for the underworld and had enjoyed his time working with gangsters either side of the Atlantic, well, he was furious when he heard about these deaths. He blamed the church committee and the FBI for failing to offer their witnesses adequate protection, but I have to imagine if the theories about syndicate involvement in the JFK hit are true, I have to imagine that Angleton was fairly relieved that they'd been clipped before any of them could say too much. Um, and then, of course, Santo Traficante and Carlos Marcello have both, at various times, been alleged to have confessed not just to commissioning the JFK assassination, but for ordering the subsequent murders of uh, Giancana, Roselli, and other key witnesses. After Giancana's death, the outfit hit a pretty rough patch um, under pressure from its unraveling skim operations in Vegas and a series of high-profile FBI investigations. The organization started to devour itself as it scrambled to kill off potential witnesses and informants before it lost everything. Now, it did manage to maintain control of Chicago's underworld and its more white-collar criminal activities remained mostly untouched uh, owing to the, the sheer number of elite figures who were also connected to these types of schemes. But it was a hair-raising couple of years. Um, I'll tell you about it sometime. Um, while it's nowhere near the heights it was back in the 1960s and the 1970s, 
the outfit's resilience and its ability to rebuild since the upheaval of the 1980s and the 1990s has been a pretty grisly and impressive feat, even if it's a far smaller operation these days. It seems to have been in the wake of the church committee hearings that the relationship between the agency and the American mob also entered a kind of a, a period of decline. Times were changing, history was moving relentlessly forward, and the CIA correctly judged that the old way of doing things was pretty much over, and that they'd have to be much more selective in their choice of assets. Uh, if they couldn't be more selective in their choice of assets, they'd have to implement much tighter controls over the flow of information and the official media narrative. And in fact, the way the, the agency successfully cowed what had been a relatively rebellious mainstream press in the 1970s is quite an interesting story in itself, and it's, it's one I'll probably cover at some point. So while the agency still relied on the syndicate for help with money laundering and stock fraud and the savings and loan scandals of the 1980s, uh, a really good example of this, they also turned to underworld figures to carry out the, the odd domestic hit here and there. Um, but the days of liaising directly with street guys and of planning operations like ZR Rifle and Mongoose with the mafia, that was mostly a thing of the past. Mostly. So thanks for listening. Uh, there's a wealth of material I never really got to include in this one, so I might put out a bonus show for it in a while. Um, remember to check out that Mark Lombardi network map too, uh, because it is absolutely mind-melting. Until next time, and as ever, leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you haven't already, uh, or sub and share some love over on the Patreon. Urge on friends and loved ones, mark the exits, and don't get captured. Thanks a lot, friends, and I'll catch you next episode. from a cell in the